It's been 50 years since the last Apollo astronaut set foot on the moon. We'll hear how NASA is going to commemorate the anniversary of the program by sending people back. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon, and this is Up First from NPR News. Arizona's Senator Kirsten Sinema is calling it quits as a Democrat. You know, a growing number of Arizonans and people like me just don't feel like we fit neatly into one party's box or the other. She's announced that she's now an independent. We'll take a look at how that move was viewed in her state. And we'll hear from one town in Ukraine as it tries to rebuild after months of fighting. So stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema spent much of the last two years carving a national reputation. She was often a Democratic holdout in contentious legislative battles in an evenly divided Senate. But she won't be that Democratic holdout anymore as she switches the D behind her name to an I for independent. Now, this won't spell any immediate changes, but it definitely raises questions about her political future. She is up for re-election in 2024. For The View from Arizona, we're now joined by KJZZ's Mark Brody in Phoenix. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And what did the senator have to say about why she changed her party affiliation? Well, she talked about how partisanship is a problem in D.C. and that she's tried to be an independent voice for Arizona during her time there. I spoke with her right after she announced the shift, and she told me the move shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone, that this is how she's approached her job during her time in the Senate, that she's worked with both parties, that she has angered and frustrated both parties, and that nothing really will change now that she's a registered independent. She also did say that there was nothing specific that happened that pushed her away from the Democratic Party. What's the response been like in Arizona? Well, three Democratic members of the state's congressional delegation have responded with maybe not the nicest things to say. And that includes Congressman Ruben Gallego, who is widely seen as a candidate for that seat in 2024 and was thought to be planning a primary challenge to cinema. Uh, Two political analysts, one Democrat and one Republican with whom I spoke on Friday, both said they were not surprised. And both of them suggested the switch was made for political reasons, mainly to avoid a primary that seems like it would have been increasingly difficult for cinema to win. Of course, all of this comes on the eve of a new Congress. What could uh, the senator's switch mean for the next two years in the Senate? Well, Cinema says she's going to continue to do her job the same way she's been doing it. And she points to a number of bills she's worked on and gotten passed with Republicans. She was, for example, very involved in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Respect for Marriage Act, which, of course, just went to the president this week. She's also working on an immigration bill now with North Carolina Republican Tom Tillis. So she says she plans to keep doing what she's been doing, just with a different letter after her name. Of course, we have to ask, uh, what indications are there about the 20? 20- 24 election. Will the senator run for re-election? Well, that is the question. I mean, for what it's worth, when I asked her about 2024, she said she wasn't thinking about that at all. But a lot of politicos in Arizona don't seem to be buying that. So this is really where it could get interesting. If she runs, she would have to collect more signatures to get on the ballot as an independent than as a Democrat. Assuming she does that, though, she can skip the primary and go straight to the general election. But some recent polls have shown Senator Sinema having trouble with a number of voting blocks. The analysts with whom I've spoken generally say the election will come down, as they so often do, to who the candidates are, both on the Democratic and Republican 
Republican side, especially with Cinema as a potential third candidate. But they also point out in that three-way race, potentially, Cinema would not have to get 50% to win. She could potentially win with support in the 30s or so. And one analyst I spoke to said he doesn't think that would be impossible for her. It also seems pretty safe to say there are a lot of conversations happening now among elected officials in Arizona to see if this is a race they might like to get into. KJZZ's Mark Brody, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, several towns just north and west of the capital were among the hardest hit. One of them was the town of Borodyanka. As Ukraine's long, hard winter sets in, NPR's Greg Myrie went to that city to see how it's coping. He joins us now from Kiev. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. What's this town like? How do residents get through the day? Yeah, the main street in Borodyanka is just this line of charred and crumbling apartment buildings on both sides of the street. There's only a few places like a small grocery store and a coffee shop that are open for business. And and the town is just desperately short of housing. Uh, Poland has donated these prefabricated dormitory-style housing modules, and, and families are packed into these small rooms sleeping on bunk beds. But this only accommodates a little over 200 people. There's probably thousands of people who would, who would stay here if there was room. And, and I met with the head of the regional government, who's effectively the mayor. Uh, the government building was badly damaged, so he, he works out of a classroom at the high school, which he has to share with 1,000 students during the week. So everyone in this town is improvising. Lord Yanka was on the uh, the front lines at the beginning of the war. The Russians gone. Uh, has it been able to do any rebuilding? It's really been a tough recovery. The Russian troops haven't been there in months, but as residents prepare for winter, they're really suffering from just this kind of second wave of punishment with the electricity cuts. Now, Russia isn't targeting this town with these ongoing missile strikes, but the power stations that are being hit all over Ukraine are part of the same national electricity grid. And so this town is enduring daily blackouts and some very long blackouts in 24 hours in some cases. And, and while many apartments and homes were destroyed, Some survived with limited damage, but just as people are fixing their roofs or replacing their windows for winter, they're now dealing with these power cuts and often have no heat or water. Greg, can you tell us about what I gather was a secret visit from a very well-known artist? Yeah, the, the well-known British street artist Banksy slipped into town last month. Uh, he created several paintings on the sides of these badly damaged buildings. And in his typically stealthy manner, he did this without word leaking out uh, until he had finished and left. Now, one image shows a small boy tossing a man to the floor on his back. Both are in martial arts attire. Uh, The man is widely assumed to be Russian leader Vladimir Putin, who is a judo enthusiast. Now, Banksy has confirmed uh, this is his work on Instagram, but he hasn't said anything beyond that. This, of course, is just one town in a large country that has suffered massive damage. What does the story of Borodjanka tell us about uh, the larger picture of how Ukrainians are doing civilians are doing at this point in the conflict. 
Yeah, Scott, one thing just keeps striking me over and over in small towns or big cities, and it really is this determination for people to stay in their communities and adapt as the war carries on. Uh, With the initial Russian invasion back at the early part of the year, millions of Ukrainians fled to neighboring countries like Poland. And if we see extended blackouts this winter, we might see something similar. But Ukraine's government is encouraging people in the cities to go into the countryside with relatives where they could burn wood for heat this winter. But so far, Ukrainians in Borodjanka and other places are staying put. They're dealing with the power cuts, and they say, we know how to survive winter. And here's Greg Myrie in Kiev. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Fifty years ago today, the final Apollo mission touched down on the moon in a spacecraft they called Challenger. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Roger, Challenger, that's super. Apollo 17 astronauts Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt were the last people to ever walk on the surface of the moon. But NASA's finally on the verge of sending people back. NASA's new space capsule is returning to Earth on Sunday after its first test flight. But it might be a couple of years before it takes humans to orbit the moon. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce is here to talk about moon landings, past and future. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So first of all, let's revisit Apollo 17 for a minute. Did the astronauts on that mission in 1972 know that it was going to be the final trip to the moon for a while? Yeah, they did know that. I mean, the Cold War race to the moon had been won, and it was a risky program. The Apollo 13 mission showed that with the mishap they had. So NASA was basically told to pursue other things. So Eugene Cernan knew he was going to be the last one on the moon for a while. And when he took the final steps on the moon, here's what he said. We leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. With peace and hope for all mankind. You know, Cernan also brought home the overshoes that he wore, the boots that made the final footprints in the lunar dust. And other astronauts had just left that kind of footwear behind to reduce the weight in their spacecraft as they came home. But he knew those were going to be historic. And Cernan became famous as the last man on the moon, right? I mean, that's that's a big deal. Yeah, he didn't love that title, really. Here's what he told me on the 40th anniversary, so that's 10 years ago. I'd like to be able to shake the hand of that young man or young woman who replaces me in that category. But unfortunately, the way things have gone and the way things are looking for the future... That won't happen in my lifetime, and that truly is disappointing. He was right. He died in 2017. But I think Cernan would be pleased at where NASA is now. It really seems poised for a return. You know, there's been support across multiple presidential administrations and Congress as well, and NASA has developed and built a giant new moon rocket. It finally launched it just last month after a bunch of delays. So, I mean, that's the the space capsule that went up. How has the test flight gone? Seemingly fine. The capsule has traveled like a million miles on this looping journey around the moon, and it's taken photos of itself during its close approaches when it would come within like 80 miles or so of the surface. But the biggest test is probably going to be re-entering the Earth's atmosphere because it'll be coming back at over 24,000 miles per hour. So that's Mach 32. 
And mission managers want to see how well the heat shield does. If all goes well, parachutes will deploy. It'll splash down the Pacific Ocean near San Diego, and then they'll recover the spacecraft. This test flight uh, had mannequins on board, not actual astronauts. Like, when could it actually take people to space? The next flight is supposed to be the one with people, and that isn't expected for another couple years, so 2024. The plan for that mission is to take astronauts around the moon and back, but not to land on the surface yet. So it'll sort of be like what Apollo 8 did in 1968. If the program continues as planned, when will people touch down on the moon again? NASA is working towards a target date of 2025. That's the goal. But most space watchers expect that's going to slip. It'll be later than that, probably. That's NPR's Nail Greenfield Boyce. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's Up First for Saturday, December 10th, 2022. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon. Up First is back tomorrow with the story of what it's like to be a worker who plays a role in executions in the U.S. and the emotional toll that it takes. And we have more news and interviews, books and music every weekend on the radio. Weekend edition every Saturday and Sunday morning on your local NPR station. You can find your station at stations.npr.org.